You're listening to the One Peter Five podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. Hello and welcome to the One Peter Five podcast, episode number 59. I'm Steve Skojak. Today, I'm going to be tackling a topic that I actually don't love talking about, and that is the Legionaries of Christ in Regnum Christi. Now, if you're unfamiliar with these names, the Legionaries of Christ are a religious order of priests that were founded 75 years ago by Father Marcial Maciel, who was later disgraced uh, when it was revealed that he was, in fact, a monstrous sexual predator, attributed with having abused some 60 of his own seminarians, fathering children with several mistresses, one of whom was herself alleged to have been one of his abuse victims when she was young, and then actually abusing the children that he fathered. It's a really sordid story, and he actually refused to make a confession on his deathbed, refused to repent. It's terrifying. The Regnum Christi is the lay movement that is associated with the Legionaries of Christ, They are also where you will find the Regnum Christi consecrated men and women uh, through that lay organization. And this is a large set of religious congregations and lay movement. It's it's present in countries all around the world. Um, It's a very wealthy order. They have over a billion dollars in assets. And for some reason, despite the truth about their founder having been revealed over a decade ago, the Legionaries of Christ and the Regnum Christi still exist. And I find this absolutely mystifying. Now, what's my connection to the Legionaries and Regnum Christi? Well, I was involved with them from a pretty young age. Around 14 or 15, I began getting involved with Legionary retreats, and then soon I was coordinating one of their youth groups, and then I went to one of their high schools, and then I lived with their priests in two different houses of apostolate. I did six different missions in... I don't know, three or four different countries, including uh, mission directing. I was in charge of one mission. Uh, I taught at one of their schools. I gave six months of my life as a full-time worker in one of their apostolates. I was involved with a lot of legionary stuff. I was, in fact, the first young men's Regnum Christi team captain in North America. So I know a little bit about the legionaries in Regnum Christi, and I was there, had a front row seat for the time of Father Maciel's primacy, I guess you would say, when when the order was the fastest growing order in the church under John Paul II, and Maciel was a favored son of the church, was loved by Pope John Paul II, protected by Pope John Paul II, who I believe sincerely thought that he wasn't the monster that he was, but nevertheless was allowed to continue under that protection from Pope John Paul II. I was there. I had the front row seat, in fact, when uh, the legionaries in 1996 realized that the media were going to be making serious allegations against their founder, not for the first time, but perhaps for the first time that they couldn't adequately deny. And they told us all that this was coming, and we saw the panic set in and the way that they dealt with this through denial and obfuscation. There's a lot of experience that I have with the legionaries of Christ, And so did many of my friends. And today's guest is one of my oldest friends. His name is Joseph Dion. He's a Catholic attorney. He's been involved with the Legion since he was eight years old. He has uh, over 30 years of experience with the Legionaries and the Regnum Christi, family members involved, friends. Uh, Joe and I actually met 
on a Legionary-led mission to the Bahamas in 1996, and we've been great friends ever since. We went to college together. Uh, he is the godfather of my son, Jude. Joe and I go way back, as they say. And Joe, when he was in law school at Ave Maria, was involved in an investigation into the Legionaries and their activities here in the United States, an investigation that actually led to a dossier being compiled and brought by an American bishop to Rome and put into the hands of Cardinal Ratzinger. Cardinal Ratzinger was later elected to the papacy about a year and a half, I think, after the investigation was delivered. And shortly after he took office, he disciplined Maciel. We don't know for sure if that investigation led to Maciel being removed from his position of power, but we do know that it turned up some very interesting things. Today's episode of the podcast isn't just about rehashing what it is that the legionaries did in those bad old days that were wrong. Today's podcast is about looking at the legionaries post-2010. 2010 was when Pope Benedict XVI assigned Cardinal de Paulus to take over the restructuring and reform of the order. Allegations have come out just in the last few days that de Paulus actually didn't reform anything, that in fact he left many of the members of the old guard in power, that nothing has truly changed, that the culture of deceit, secrecy, manipulation, it's all still in place. And that as recently as 2013 or 2014, the Legion was still trying to use financial settlements with abuse victims in order to obtain statements, uh, statements that are deceitful, that are incorrect, that are factually wrong from victims saying that they were never actually abused by members of the order. This is uh, from an Associated Press story that came out just a few days ago. In the last month, we've actually seen several new rounds of allegations from abuse coming from within the Legion, from members in positions of power, priests who were in formative positions dating back to the 1990s during the time when I was involved. So today, Joe and I are going to try to unpack a little bit of this history, this shared history that we have. We're also going to look at the Legion now, today, and we're going to try to address the problem that's faced by members of the Regnum Christi and priests within the Legion right now, seminarians within the Legion right now, who are perhaps looking anew after these new rounds of allegations, uh, not just of sex abuse, but of corruption and deceit, and saying, is this really where I want to be? In a recent episode of the 1 Peter 5 Minute, I actually encouraged those priests within the order who cared who were good men, who cared about their vocations, the souls entrusted to them, and God to leave the order. Today, we're going to take a look at whether or not that's even possible for them. So if you're a member of Regnum Christi, if you're a priest or seminarian within the Legion, and you're watching this episode, this is for you. We may not have a definitive conclusion at the end of this show, but we want you to know you're not alone. We know that lots of good people are involved in the Regnum Christi and in the Legionaries of Christ. We know that we were involved and that we were there because we wanted more from a church that wasn't offering uh, those things to us, and we thought that we identified them within. Later, we realized that there were problems and that we needed to get out. Maybe that's where you are now. So I want to tell you, just like I told people back then, you're not alone. You're not the only one thinking this. You're not the only one who has these concerns. You're not crazy. And if possible, I'd like to be able to help. 
So I'll be talking about all of this with Joe Dion in just a minute. Stay tuned. Do you love 1 Peter 5? Do you want to join in our fight? Go to 1peter5.com forward slash donate today. Thank you for your support. Listening to the One Peter podcast. <laughs> that was close. Let's try one more time. You're listening to the One Peter Five Cast. <laughs> one more try. One more try. You're listening to the One Peter Five podcast. Oh. Oh. Okay. Try again. You're listening to the One mm, mm. Podcast. <laughs> one last try. No. You're done. Okay, you're listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. Thanks for listening. Um, I want to do that again. With me today to discuss the situation with the Legionaries of Christ is one of my oldest friends, Joseph Dion. He is an attorney, and uh, his personal and family history involvement uh, with the Legionaries of Regnum Christi goes back over 30 years. So, Joe, thanks for joining me to talk about this. My pleasure. Good to be here, Steve. So I want to establish some personal history here. I got involved with the Legion uh, somewhere around the ninth grade, I think. Uh, memory's a little hazy, but there was a priest who was a cousin of one of my uncles, um, and he came out and started doing retreats for us, and I started making visits to the Apostolic Center up in New Hampshire and kind of slowly got involved through the Legion's uh, youth group, ECYD, uh, when I was a kid, and then these retreats, and then... Uh, before long, I wound up uh, doing a uh, summer camp for Mexican boys uh, with the Legion in 1995 uh, in Dallas at the school that they have there, the Highland School in Irving, Texas. And I decided to finish my high school senior year. Uh, I, I was in, in between my junior and senior year. I decided to finish my senior year of high school there with the Legion. I lived with the priests and community. This is when I became immersed in the whole legionary community and got to know Regnum Christi. I became uh, the first young men's Regnum Christi team captain in the North American territory, or at least that's what they told me. They were probably lying. Um, but very involved, <laughs> recruiting, doing missionary work, all that stuff. And that's where I met you, uh, was on a mission in the Bahamas in 1996. So that's our connection. We've known each other for way too long. What about you? What is your, in how did you get involved? From 1996, that's 25 years ago? Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, 24, I think it's 2020. So it's 24 Sorry, years 20, last month. All right, yeah. 24. So you, how old were you when you first got involved before 1996? I think I was 14 or 15. 14 or 15. Okay. So I was eight uh, when I first got involved, when I first went on the uh, first retreat, which was, if I'm eight, that, that means it was about 1983 or 1984. Okay. 44 now. So that basically that, that puts that in a 36 years ago, right? Yeah. It's been so a while. Long time ago. Um, I got involved. I went on regular retreats, uh, for probably about 10 years. And in the interim, I have eight brothers, four of my brothers spend time in a legionary seminary. So that was my, that's my, that's my, um, my history. And then I met you. Yeah. We met in the Bahamas. Right. And then we yeah then we've gone to college together but i did do a number of a number of missions with you um but 
I have not been actively involved since the late 90s. No, I, I mean, neither of us have, but right. we have sort of the unique historical perspective of right. not only having been involved during Maciel's heyday, you know, and for those right. of you who are just waking up from a 40 year sleep, yeah, right. uh, Father Marcial Maciel, I actually hesitate to call him father uh, because I don't think he deserves to be a priest, um, but was the founder of the Legionaries of Christ was a serial uh, clerical sex abuser. Not only did he abuse at least 60 of his own seminarians that we know of, uh, he fathered several children with mistresses, one of whom uh, was also one of his abuse victims when she was young. And then he raped his own children, at least one that we know of who's talked about it, but I think there may be more. Actually, it's important in this in this situation, like this isn't speculation. This is something that the Legion itself has actually come out and admitted, right? Specifically that the fact that there were 60 victims that were confirmed by the Legion. Yeah, I believe the they confirmed that. I mean, I yeah. know that they've been a little <clears throat> bit cagey, I think, about some of the details pertaining to his own kids and things like that. But these are the right. facts that are out there. These are the known accusations at many yeah. of which were confirmed. Uh, the Vatican, you know, sentenced him to prayer and penance and all this stuff before his death. So, I mean, this is, yeah, we're not just talking about unfounded allegations here. Right. So let me jump in then as to why, uh, basically, why, why did you call me up to ask me about this? <clears throat> and that's because <clears throat> after I was involved with the Legion, um, I was in law school. Uh, and I'm going to go into this now because most people don't know this. Can I back um, you up for a second, though, before sure, you yeah, get yeah, to yeah. that? Because I do want to talk about that, but I also want to make yeah. the reason. So, so again, Joe and I have not been involved since the 90s. However, we were very involved in the 90s. And so we met on a mission trip to the Bahamas with the Regnum Christi front group, Youth for the Third Millennium. Regnum Christi is the lay movement that is under the direct control and, and guidance of the Legionaries of Christ, which is the religious congregation. So... Uh, Regnum Christi uses various front groups um, that don't have the Regnum Christi name. And back then they were, I think, probably even less transparent about it than they are now. Um, and so the, these missions would be advertised for young people to go door to door and, and try to bring people back to church and talk about their faith. So we did a number of these missions and, and Joe and I met on one. The missions were actually used for recruitment purposes. They were to bring people into Regnum Christi. That was actually their primary focus, which I didn't discover until my sixth mission when I was running the thing. Uh, and I was told flat out that that was really what it was about. But uh, so we met doing this. And then as I concluded my high school year, I graduated from the Highlands in 1996. Joe and I both entered into what the Legionaries called the coworker program. You can So I'm not the only one talking. You want to explain what that is? Yeah, it's basically where you devote a year of your life, uh, usually either right before college, <clears throat> and that you do it uh, spending your time doing a number of different apostolates, one being missionary work, um, uh, assisting with uh, catechetical teaching at a school, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, and, and ironically, you know, we met when I was coming to the Bahamas from Dallas. You got assigned to Dallas, to the place where I had been living after I graduated. Right. I got sent to Atlanta. Uh, so we were doing, you know, work in different uh, houses of apostolate with the legionaries here in the United States, but we would get together once a month for a retreat at the Legionary American headquarters in Cheshire, Connecticut. And so we were there uh, for Thanksgiving in 1996 for our normal monthly retreat, and then we all went back home to our houses of apostolate. 
And I don't remember if it was 24 hours, 48 hours, but then we all got called back to go to Cheshire. Every, everybody in the United States, the brothers, the priests, the, the lay coworkers who were full-time working in the apostolate, everybody got called back on about a day's notice. I can't even imagine how many millions of dollars they spent to bring everyone to the seminary to tell us that allegations were coming out against Father Maciel. But uh, it was a really weird kind of a thing because, first of all, I mean, we had this front row seat to what was happening, but they didn't tell us anything, did they? No, they didn't give us anything. They, they basically just brought us back there, which, of course, I mean, it was the worst possible PR uh, uh for us, because we're just sitting there going, why are they doing it this way? It was just such a strange way to do it. And do you remember they had us all sitting, all <laughs> the coworkers were all sitting in a classroom, probably 10 of us, maybe more. Yeah. I don't remember how many were well, in All that. of us were, were close friends too. Yeah. For the most we had become part, friends. Right? Yeah. And so we're all yeah. sitting in this classroom waiting for, because they gave a different briefing to the priests and then to the seminarians yes. and then to us. And each one had less information. And all we had to do, we were sitting there on our hands, just like, what is going on? Why did we get called back here? What is happening? We had no idea. So we're now, speculating. You know as well as I do. At this, yeah, go at ahead. At this point, don't you think that you and I, and there were probably one or two others, but we were starting to put two and two together of like, what, why would they do this? It's just the whole way in which it was not at all transparent, right? Oh, it was very suspicious. And then yeah, what did they really. tell us? They said, Okay, so some stuff is coming out in the newspaper about Father Maciel. It's not true. Don't read it. If anybody asks you, deny everything. That was basically all they told yeah, us. Right. Which was... Again. I, yeah. I mean, you're like, seriously? That's what you want us to do? <laughs> yeah. It didn't make any sense. $2,500 and a plane ticket for me to come back to hear that? Why didn't you just send me a memo? Yeah, seriously. I, I mean, it's a, so one, it's a one-liner. And, and you, you, so, again, putting it into context, it's 1996. The internet yeah. is still a relatively rare commodity, right? Uh, nobody's right. got cell phones. You know, the way information is is moving and is controlled is very different at this point in time than it ends up being several years later. The other thing is the sex abuse crisis in the United States doesn't break until what, 2001, 2002? Yep. So none of us are coming to this meeting thinking, oh, you know, the, these are the kinds of allegations that are that we're going to be hearing about. We don't know what's going on. We have no context well, we did, we, to put this we did in. Know the, we did know what the accusations were against Father Maciel years and years beforehand. Oh, yeah, we'd heard about those. In fact, they made yeah. it into a martyr story, right? I mean, you know, that he was being persecuted and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And whenever you hear stuff like that, I mean, I, I can now look at it in hindsight as, a, as an attorney Saying, well, I mean, the evidence, you know, in, involving those type of situations is so difficult, right, to parse because it's always a, a 12-year-old boy's testimony against a, at that point, a very well-respected priest who has been um, touted by popes. Oh, yeah. So the, from our perspective, right, there, it's, it's, a, it's a foregone conclusion. Well, clearly, if you only have one or two people coming forward, it's just a matter of they're, they're attempting to persecute this this um, holy uh, yeah. man. Man who never said no to Christ, right? Right. Yeah, I exactly. mean, that's what that's what he said, <laughs> and that's what they no told to us, is yeah, that he right. had never said yeah. no to Christ, which I <laughs> I don't even... No, no, yeah, let's just stop. Let's move so, on. So, <laughs> don't even... Okay. But remember the myth that's built up about this guy. Sure. I mean, I don't remember them saying that the earlier accusations were about this kind of thing. I think even that was too sorted. They talked about how 
he had been accused of abusing drugs and, you know, other vague things. I don't remember them telling this, but I do remember them telling us the story on multiple occasions of how Father Maciel had had some medical emergency. Do you remember this? And he's in an yeah. ambulance. Yeah. And the ambulance right. driver is trying to take him to Rome because, you know, that's the closest hospital. But he's currently, for some reason, he's banned from the city of Rome because of these false allegations. And he's so obedient, so obedient and suffering, you know, in such a noble and saintly way that he orders the ambulance driver to turn around and take him to someplace else because he's not going to violate, you know, the papal order that he doesn't come into the city of Rome. You know, it's so hard not to be facetious about this. No, and you I can't be. Yeah, I, I know. I want to take this very seriously, but when we when you start remembering these stories and you start recounting them, because as you're saying this, I'm like, oh, it's, it's embarrassing just to hear. But you were a kid, and you were looking yeah, for yeah. holy priests to look up to, and right. the church was in chaos. I mean, your family took refuge in the Byzant Byzantine church because right. the Detroit That's archdiocese right. was so bad. I never saw things like incense or chant or adoration and benediction and all that stuff until the legionaries. That stuff didn't exist <clears throat> right. until I was 15, 16 years old. Never had seen it before. So we go into this order that has all this superficial orthodoxy. It has the stuff that we're looking for so that we, we're not just giving up on the Jesus is a butterfly from the mountain <laughs> church that you get in most of these parishes, right. you know, with the folk groups and Friends the silliness. Friends banner. And, don't, yeah. don't forget the banners. Yeah, yeah, the felt banners, the butterfly banners. <laughs> right. But but so this was the first experience of something that looked like serious, authentic, masculine Catholicism that we'd ever had. And so yeah, we were ready to buy into these myths. And we were, we were like, yeah, man. I mean, they talked about the Cristeros all the time. And somehow they managed to always mention Maciel in the same breath with the Cristeros, like he was one of them. And and it was like, he oh, just on, got Steve, incorporated. Like, you remember the stories. You do remember the specific stories about the... Um... What he witnessed his friend who had the heels of his yeah they feet. cut off the bottoms of his feet is that the one yeah and, he, and they marched yeah, yeah, yeah. him through and the he town had to dig his own grave and then they killed him they you know made yeah. him a martyr yeah. yeah 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 of course yeah I remember the story sure yeah I mean I, I'm guessing what his best friend was Miguel Pro although I looked it up and Saint Miguel Pro didn't have the bottoms oh. of his feet cut off. So it must well, have been also, some the, other the timeline would not have worked. It must I, have been some other imaginary friend of Maciel's. Yeah. Uh, the guy's so nice, they <laughs> named him twice, Maciel, Maciel. But, yeah. so, okay, yeah, so, I mean, there is there's a, a level <clears throat> of resentment that I have toward having been hoodwinked at a moment in my life where I was really looking for spirituality. I, I came very close to leaving my faith as a teen because I, I said, this is so unserious, I can't take this seriously anymore. And then I found the Legion, and I was like, oh, no, no, it can be serious. Look at this. Look at the way that they do things. They're disciplined, yeah. they're orderly. Their masses are reverent. You know, all this stuff pulled me in, and it, and it all pointed in an aesthetic way to we believe in the Eucharist, we believe in the teachings of the church. And so it, it re-solidified that foundation for me. And to have been so manipulated, and I, and I told you this when I talked to you yesterday on the phone, but I found a letter that I wrote uh, as a teen during my coworker year uh, to Father Maciel, to Father Maciel, and it's <laughs> embarrassing. It is yeah. embarrassing. I was struggling with discernment. They were vocationally pressuring me to death. There's all this stuff going on. And I, I mean, I'm writing to him like, you know, you're such a saint. You probably know me better than I know myself. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. I had been fed this cult ideology. And when I look at it, it's so embarrassing. But at the same time, like I said to you, like, I have to keep this. Because I need so, to remember 
the mistake that I made. Never yeah. fall for this again. I don't have the same reaction. You and I have talked about this. Um, you were less of a conformist than I ever was. That's for sure. I'm sorry. I said you were less of a conformist by nature <clears throat> yeah, than I that's was. That's true. No, that's true. But but as far as you know, the I, it's not embarrassment. It's it, it definitely. I don't know. I you know that's a that's a good way of like how do I actually feel about it? It has a lot to do with. Uh, there's a lot of catechetical formation that I would say was good that I got. Mm -hmm. um, I just uh, didn't. I was never as in culture, I was never one of them, I guess. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was never really, and when, when, and if I was, I was, I was pretty young, but I don't know. I don't know. I, it's, it, that's a hard thing to think about because I know so many people have been damaged. Yeah. So let's, okay. So let's move on. Yeah. So we, we have this yeah. common experience of, we did the right. coworker stuff. We're, we're there. We have a front row seat to the Legionaries denial machine kicking in in 1996. They don't fully admit everything that happened until 2010, I believe. So there's a long process there, right? Yeah. So, but we right. both, I left that Christmas of 96. I left halfway through my year uh, on the advice of a, of a parish priest uh, at home who I didn't even know. He was our new pastor. And he came up to me after mass and he's like, this is going to seem weird but I couldn't, I couldn't leave the church after mass. I needed to talk to you. Like I felt God wanted me to talk to you. And he took me out to breakfast and we talked and he didn't bring it up. And I started telling him about what I was doing with the Legion and everything. And that I was feeling like maybe I needed to go because they were pushing me toward the priesthood and it made me, I didn't want to be a priest. And then he's like, oh, I'm so glad you said that because that's the thing I felt like God wanted me to talk to you about. I don't think you're supposed to be there. I think it's bad for you. I need to get you out of there. So he had this spiritual insight. Thank God. And I went home that day and I, I wrote a letter and I sent a fax and I'm like, I'm done. And I yes, was like, I, it, it, I mean, the, the breakup for me was it's not you, it's me. I can't deal with the anxiety. I, I can't figure out what I'm doing. I have this girl that I was in love with. I thought I wanted to marry her. They wanted me to be a priest. I'm going back and forth. I was driving myself nuts. So I send this letter immediately. The campaign of disparagement against me begins. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know that that was going to happen. I mean, I was getting ready to go to Miami to do the final mission that I had planned for months. And I was the director of, uh, I, I was, you know, I was like, Hey, this is my fault. I need to go work some stuff out before I can do any more. And so I left on what I thought were good terms, but they're calling my girlfriend's mom. They're calling my friends they are calling everybody who knew me and planting disinformation about how I'm this bad person who isn't generous and, Okay, you know, so let me stop you for just a second. Let me use. stop you because I think this is important. You, you're saying right now, I'm hearing you, and we've talked about this over the years, but you're saying that you did not see the campaign of disparagement coming. Okay, so let's just go back for just a second. Mm -hmm. Remember during that time, now this is over 20 years ago. You, you know, we both know how many times you were lied to by the Legion over and over and over again. I know now. No, even during the time, you, you knew that you were being lied to about, like, for example, the, uh, the situation with your girlfriend, that whole situation. Well, I didn't know I was being lied to at the time because okay, they did. Okay, all right, I'm sorry, okay. No, I, I and, and I mean, I should bring this up because so during my time <laughs> yeah. in Atlanta, during my coworker time, I, you know, we were allowed to still have 
relationships, but we were supposed sure, to yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. keep our distance. Yeah, we weren't right? discerning the priesthood. No, yeah. so we could we could write letters to them and we could call them like yeah. once a month. It was supposed to be limited contact, so we focused on the work we were doing. But if we were in an existing relationship, it wasn't forbidden by the rules technically. But my girlfriend was getting psychiatric help because of mm -hmm. an abusive situation in her childhood. And mm -hmm. uh, so she was in an unusual place. She wasn't where she was from. And um, she was uh, uh, under the care of a Regnum Christi psychiatrist. And the priest that uh, found out that I was trying to figure out where she was, because I didn't know where she was and what was happening, um, he said, I know this psychiatrist, he's Regan Christie, we're friends, and uh, let me talk yeah. to him, and I'll let you know. So then he comes back to me a couple of days later, and he's like, I talked to him, he said she's doing fine, but she can't have any contact with you because you're going to set back the process of therapy and blah, 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 right? So this goes on, and every month I'm like, can I talk to her yet? And he's like, no, because this, because that, and he constantly has this this pretense that he's talking to the psychiatrist. So when I finally leave, I go and I visit her. And I asked her about this, and she's like, I'm not supposed to not talk to people. That That's not true. Then she goes yeah. in for her next appointment. She comes back, and she says, I talked to this doctor, and he said he's never said a word to the priest right. that you're with right. because it would be a breach of patient confidentiality. Right. Duh, obviously it would. She's yes. like, he can't even talk to my mom. I'm an adult. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, unless I specifically say you can talk about my situation, he can't talk about it. Right. And I realized, you know, dupe again, I'm 18, 19 at yeah. the point when I leave. And it's like, I didn't, I didn't see it coming. I didn't realize what was happening until after. And then the yeah. pieces all started clicking into place. So uh, that's the situation. I leave, you leave a couple months later, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know what mm -hmm. month yeah. it was, but you were having I problems. Even, I don't either. It's, it's a total blur to me, <laughs> whole thing. Uh, but I did. I left soon after. Um, and I think, like you, I was just fed up, you know, no, nothing more than that. It was just kind of like, okay, I, I, this is not for me. I need. I mean, you, fr frankly, you just couldn't trust the leadership of the priest that, you know, was running the House of Apostle that you were assigned to. There were bad decisions being made. Horrible decisions uh, to the point where, yeah, I was, uh, I was disinvited from confession once. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but for calling him out on the fact that he was yeah. doing something wrong, right? And yeah, uh, so. telling him that you know you wouldn't go to hell for the sake of fellowship, right? You know, like Saint Thomas More in A Man for yes. All Seasons, right? Basically. Exactly, exactly. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, yeah. that's about as Christian as we're gonna get. <laughs> well, it, but but this is the thing. Look, this is and this is something I've thought about for a while. The legionaries back then, at least, always talked about they cultivated leaders, they recruited leaders, they wanted leaders, they didn't want leaders. Because leaders are people like you and me who say, hold up, something's not right, and I'm not going to do this thing you're telling me to do. I'm not going to lie to these people. I'm not going to use these people. You may think it's okay, but I don't. And in a bizarre we sense, all started pushing back. Sure. In a bizarre sense, I actually give them, if I'm going to be brutally honest about it, I give them credit for making me into a certain kind of leader. Because when you have a situation where you trust people, particularly in that circumstance, you know, you have a priest or something like that, and they do something wrong, and you find the courage in yourself, being a devout Catholic, who uh, realizes, you know, in this circumstance, you have to basically call out a priest, a priest that not just that I 
presumably trust at a particular point in time, but that hundreds of other Catholics not only trust, but hold them up on a pedestal. Yeah. That it takes a tremendous amount of uh, fortitude to get to that point. So, especially because we grew up in this pre abuse crisis era, we were yeah. raised where when a priest says something, I mean, it's almost gospel. Yeah. Sure. And, and I don't think people sure. understand that who are, you know, in their 20s or younger now. Yeah. It, it wasn't like it is now back then where there was this this sort of de facto atmosphere of suspicion. Even if you're right. a good priest, I'm not sure I really fully trust you. That didn't yeah. happen when we were kids. Right. Yeah. I mean, no, that's true. And I mean, I, I again, I, in, maybe in an indirect way, I, I give them, a, I, I'm willing to give them a little bit of credit as far as why I would even go. Uh, more extreme and hold priests even to a higher threshold, right? By whether, <clears throat> by, by whether it's um, rediscovering the traditional Latin mass or something to that effect. I mean, it's, it, no, I don't, I do think that there's, that I can probably give them credit against their own will. I would probably, there are a reason why I, you as well, that we, we pursued that, those types of um, traditions. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't, <clears throat> I, I can't sort of disentangle the formative aspects of what they gave me. Yes. I have yeah. always said they gave me my faith when I was losing it, but they almost cost me my faith when sure. they turned on me. And so let's fast forward. Is one, of the, one of the consequences of many people who did get involved and entered the seminary. Right. Yeah, a lot of people who leave lose their faith. I mean, they lose their faith. You've seen yeah. it in people that you know. Wow. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, all right, let's fast forward a little bit more. I, and yeah. I promise, I mean, this personal history is relevant because it helps yeah, to sure. understand how, you know, we are, we've just, we were so involved and it was so inextricable from our lives. So 1997, we, we both leave in 96, early 96. In 97, we both independently decide we're going to Steubenville. Franciscan University. Yeah, along with what, uh, of the six or seven co-workers that year? A lot. Us a lot. ended up going to Steubenville independently of each other. Like yeah, at least, at least two other of the guys that were in our group went, and a Three. number of the girls who, who did it at the same time. So there were, I mean, it was weird, because we get to Steubenville and we have this power block of people yes, that we already yes. know. Yeah. Um, and socially, that made a difference on campus, right. because as a freshman class, we didn't have that need for integration. We just like came right. in and took over because we all knew each yeah. other and, you know, which was kind of cool. But so we get to Steubenville and <clears throat> there's not just us, but there's a lot of people that had been involved with Legion or still were that were kind of washing up on those shores all sure. at the same time. There was a pretty significant Regnum Christi contingent on campus, but we weren't all on the same page um, right. and sort of, infighting started happening uh, almost immediately over whether Legion really was trustworthy anymore, whether they were corrupt, right. why, you know, Regnum Christie was recruiting so heavily on campus. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that was going on at that time. And because of what I had gone through, because of coming to the conclusion I'd been being lied to in spiritual direction, because they were telling my friends all this stuff about me. I mean, they told one of my best friends, the guy who lived with me in Atlanta, uh, to think of me like a soldier who has fallen in battle and you can't go back for the body. You have to keep marching up the hill. You know, it's just like these absurd metaphors. And my friend well, was that like. that metaphor actually doesn't even work because <laughs> no. having served in the military, he wouldn't do that. Right, exactly. Exactly, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yes. I, you were told that. That's no, this is what one of the priests told uh, our good friend sure. Paul, 
who lived with us. Yeah. And Paul just scoffed at him. And he's like, he's, he's like one of my best friends. Are you kidding me? There's not yeah. a chance that I'm just yeah. going to drop him and leave him. Same thing with another one of our friends who was in another place and the brothers were gossiping, telling him he didn't know the real story about me and everything. He was like, shut up. You're a bunch of old gossiping women. I yeah. had good friends. That's the thing. That was the saving grace is I had real friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were trying to destroy my reputation. So I get to Steubenville and I'm like, holy crap. Like this thing that had become almost my new family, I'd been involved for years, very involved. Uh, I I was Regan Christie. I was a teacher. I was a youth group leader. I was a missionary. I was doing all this stuff. I lived with these guys, the priests. And now all of a sudden they're stabbing me in the back. And I'm like, this is crazy. Yeah. These are people I trusted with everything. Yeah. So I get Steubenville. And, and then I even get the cryptic message from, uh, I'll just say his name, Father Michael Goodyear, uh, who was involved with uh, the missionary work when I was, and then he got assigned to Steubenville. Uh, as sort of the Raymond Christie chaplain there. And I get this cryptic message through somebody. They come to me and they say, hey, Father Michael says the Legion owes you an apology, but they're not going to come to you. You have to come to them. And I was like, uh, excuse me? What? That's how apologies work for them? So, so I started working against them. I was like, no, I'm sorry. I've talked to too many people who have been betrayed, who have been manipulated, who have been lied to, who have been used, and they all weren't talking to each other. Because within the Legion, there was this thing about, we don't complain about this stuff. We don't, you know, the valve against criticism still existed at that time. Uh, and so everything went up the chain of command. If you had a problem, you talked to your superior and they told you not to talk to other people about it. Well, I started talking to other people about it and they were saying, wait a minute, you mean this isn't just happening to me? This isn't just my feeling that, that things are not right? And so that, as that feeling began to grow, I became... I think it's fair to say persona non grata amongst the, uh, yes, you did. the Regnum Christi crowd on mm-hmm. campus. You know, and to your credit, you were one of the people who entertained uh, my rants against what was going on. And I was very emotionally raw at the time. But you still weren't sure. Like you were like, I think you're exaggerating. Yeah, I don't, you know, you're right. You're right. I think my feeling, I wasn't as, I didn't have as much of a, an emotional reaction. I knew there were problems, but I also, I would attend retreats on occasion, that type of thing. That's true. Um, it was one of those things where I didn't want to expel, I didn't want to expend a lot of energy one way or the other, because I became more and more apathetic about, uh, there wasn't a lot available. Right? Yeah. No, there wasn't. But um, you also became more and more aware of how socially awkward the people who were coming out of the Legion of Regnum Christi and showing up at school, they were, there was some weirdness going on there. And it started, started almost be a joke. I mean, we called it post-Legionary syndrome. We kind of just came up with a name for it. Yeah. The post-Legionary syndrome, which was the, the, the men who were coming out of the seminary and they were told and I, this isn't one source, this is numerous sources. They were told that if they left, they would lose their soul, that they were turning their back on God. And then they would show up at college and they had major problems. Yeah, yeah. Problems men- with faith, problems with purity. I mean, that was a big thing. A lot of them became yep. very promiscuous. I mean, it, and it was so consistent. It manifested in such consistent ways that for me... There's no way it, you could deny it. Right. That there was a problem. There's right. no way. And there was no way that problem was that consistent unless the corruption actually 
stemmed from the founder because it was these guys were coming from all over the yeah, place. Yes, so that's that's where I obviously in hindsight we can all admit that, but that's where that's where I, I didn't know if that was the case. Was it the founder or was it just was it a cultural look? I'm not suggesting that. I mean, obviously we know now. Yeah, but it was one of those things that I just I didn't know. I there wasn't enough for me. And to I make. remember making that argument at the time, but still not thinking. Holy yeah. cow! This guy is is Rasputin. He's a uh, you know a repellent moral monster yeah. of a right. magnitude. You know, even when I first heard the sex abuse allegations against him, I was like, really? I mean, that's out yeah. there. I I didn't believe it initially, but I believed in the corruption. So, all right, we graduate four years later. Over time, you know, it it becomes sort of a like they're there, but it's less and less of a factor for us. But then I find out very shortly after graduation that the TORs, the Third Order Regular Franciscans who run Steubenville, are investigating Regnum Christi and their presence on campus and what's going right. on. There were some indications that I picked up on that maybe they were attempting a hostile takeover of, of the college, which is something yep. that they had done at other schools. They get mm -hmm. Regnum Christi members on the board of directors until they <clears throat> get control, and it's all done sort of very surreptitiously. I never was able to prove that, but I asked direct questions of some people who had knowledge and they refused to answer me. Uh, and they were honest people. So I, you know, your silence gives consent was the impression yes. that I had. So the TORs wind up shutting down all recruitment by all religious groups and, and, and religious movements on campus, I think the year after I graduated. But it was because they were trying to stop Regnum Christie. It wasn't because they were really worried about the other groups. That was my understanding. Yes. I mean, Reagan Christie had started the rugby team. I, well, I have I have personal knowledge of, okay. of all. Of his, yeah. So Reagan Christie had started the rugby team on campus. I mean, that right. Steubenville still has a rugby team, but it was started as a recruitment sure. tool, and they wound up yeah. having to separate that from Reagan Christie. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that they had their claws in, um, and and they're doing the same pyramid marketing thing that they always do, and they just sort of virally make their <laughs> way into you know an organization and take over. But then the investigation gets shut down. I mean, I got a call from the priest who was running it. I won't name him because, you know. But yep, know. I had gotten a call and he was asking me all these questions. And he was like, you know, really worried that, that they were so ends justify the means that there's nothing that would stop them from attaining their ends no matter who they hurt. And then all of a sudden their investigation gets shut down, I believe, by the bishop or by the provincial <laughs> superior. I don't remember which. And then what? Where does it go from there? That's where you pick up the trail. So, yeah, you want me to jump in here? So basically what happened was um, I had started law school in 2001. And at that point, I had neither the time nor the interest nor the patience to deal with anything related to the, um, the LC. Uh, I just, it, it, was, it was something that, that I left behind, right? And so that was over and done with. Then, uh, right after 9-11, actually, within a couple months, a professor calls me to his office, and this is uh, Professor Charlie Wright, who has since passed away. Um, uh, professor Rice wasn't just simply a professor; he was he was a he was a um, a mentor of mine. He really became almost like a second dad to me. I was very very close with with uh, Professor Rice. So he starts asking me questions about my involvement with Legion, and I was kind of just like haphazardly like, yeah, yeah, no, I think there's problems, but whatever. Ultimately, to make a long story short, he puts me in touch with a bishop um, 
who wanted to investigate the Legion, a formal canonical investigation. That was uh, resulted in me meeting this bishop in a uh, undisclosed location, literally, it just the crazy, weird, like random place out in the middle of nowhere where I sat down with this bishop, had a very long discussion with him, and he basically set about and said, would you be willing to lead a group of people to ask a series of questions related to what he considered to be um, uh, illegal activity the Legionaries of Christ was involved in, um, such as, like and you had just briefly mentioned, uh, you know, these, these hostile takeovers of organizations, um, misuse of, of, of different types of positions of authority, fraud, uh, con contractual violations, the, the list goes on and on and on. So basically, I did spend about a year while in law school, um, even though I was so busy, I just remember traveling all over the United States, interviewing these people, taking down statements, um, started off with about a couple dozen statements, <clears throat> and ultimately ended up with over 100 different witnesses, put this entire report together, handed it over to the bishop with the understanding that the, this bishop would take this report and deliver it at the time would have been Cardinal Ratzinger. And the results of it were pretty telling. So I, you and I, we can talk a lot about the things that we personally experienced with the Legion. I had no idea what other people had experienced to such a degree that it was, it was really telling the fact that there were some really serious problems. I mean, serious, like, that you it's just just take it for example you said the the hostage the hostile takeover of schools and stuff now you did actually experience that did you not uh where where you were a, a co-worker i believe that it had already happened it had I already happened there. that was the story i heard from virtually every established school that like it was, was some private academy I, I, again yeah, my my memory yeah. is hazy but it was a private academy no, that no, they okay, were able I don't to take put you over on the spot yeah because it was a story that i just kept hearing over and over and over again these people who had started apostolates and then the legion would come in get people put on the um on a board and then completely shut out the people who started the the program and uh it was pretty astounding so Basically, that's what happened in this was uh, it was about a year long that would happen in 2002 or 2003. I don't know exactly when it when it was sent to Rome, nor, by the way, do I need to know. I don't want to know anything more than that because I we handed over all the information and then I basically washed my hands. of it. I didn't want anything to do with it because as I was reading through it, I, I could tell that this was, as you alluded to while in college, this was way, way worse than we had ever anticipated. Right. Right, and so uh, this is okay. So there's a couple key points I want to draw out here. Yeah, because there are there are the very specific findings that I. I, I mean, um, generally speaking, one of the things that people miss because Maciel was so monstrous is that as bad as he was, what happened was a culture was created around him of deceit and manipulation and corruption and you know, swindling old ladies out of their inheritance, sure. you know, and all this kind of stuff. People would sign over their fortunes and say, legionaries, you manage it. And and we'll just get a stipend from you to live off of. I mean, crazy amounts of money. We watched them raise $35 million to buy the IBM Thornwood facility in like six months. They were just yeah. pulling money out of the air. You know, now I, I'm aware that in 2004, uh, 
I was able to to obtain information just from public reporting. In 2004, their assets were over a billion dollars. I don't know how where they are now. Well, first of all, I think that's an incredibly conservative estimate. And that's I, what I was going to ask. Yeah. Uh, but again, I mean, there's no way to verify that, right? All I, all I can tell you is that from what I was told, that was a very conservative estimate. So you threw out a bunch of things right there about um, uh, you know, their fundraising and stuff like that. There were very specific things that universally what you could see from everyone who filled out a statement about them, about what they experienced. The number one thing was, and again, this is only based upon these specific individuals who agreed to make a statement, you know, uh, it, to send it, knowing that it was going to be sent to a bishop uh, in, in, an, in a canonical investigation. Then the one thing that I remember um, that was pretty universal is what, what I, you and I had talked about this before, but it's that institutionalized calumny. It's the idea of like anything that became negative towards them. They would do everything they possibly could to destroy that particular thing, whether it be an institution or an individual. So in a situation involving like, for example, the hostile takeover of, a, of, a, of an organization, let's say an apostolate, they'd first actually take it over by having people brought onto a board or, or something to that uh, effect. And then what they would do is they'd turn around and they would just destroy the people who mm. were originally in order to ensure that they were number one on the call list. Um, you know, there were, there were things that in hindsight, you don't want to think about, but you're looking at this and you're thinking, well, I remember, you know, people that we knew in college or whatever, and they would, they would make stuff up in order to, um, either cut ties with you or destroy you or, or something like that. And you're just like, and you only, you didn't think about it. You think about it in hindsight, you're going, holy smokes. That was I mean, I thought about it at the time because they were doing it to me, but the thing was yeah. I thrived on it. I was like, yeah, come at me guys. It's just going to make yeah. me stronger because my position is you're corrupt. So keep saying this stuff about me and I'll keep telling everybody, you know, and, and we'll, we'll see who wins. But so, okay. So, my, and let's my, be really clear that now not all of them are like this. Okay, and so that that's the, I, you know you want to get them the benefit. No, but it's an institutional strategy. I mean, it comes right out of sure. the writings of Maciel and Envoy, where he says, if yeah. anybody's speaking badly about the movement, we have to be ready to mercilessly cut them off. And I can't okay, remember the let's, exact let's actually, language. Let's clear that up. First of all, you said the writings of Father. Yeah, Maciel. well, he plagiarized most things. But okay, I just want to make sure that we're clear on that point. I, we're not making this up. He was found to have plagiarized. <laughs> Yeah. There's literally yeah. no level of corruption. This man wasn't like, hey, I right. think that sounds like a good idea. Let's try that thing. Right. Um, so so, the, so let's, let me get back to this. So, okay. and I don't want to spend too much time on this because I literally took this whole entire, all the evidence, everything, and I, 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 gave, you know, I gave it off to the, to the bishop, and I never wanted to see it again. But what happened when he went to Rome? What, what, did, what did he mean? I don't know, nor... Well, I mean, obviously, we know what happened. But you know, I mean, I remember you telling me at the time there were a lot of closed doors because people had already been paid off. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. No, of course. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, that's no, there's no question. He couldn't get a hearing, right? Well, a number of people, a number of people, they didn't have the financial means to to deal with. I mean, there was one specific, and I'm not going to bring it up because it's it's public record. But I don't want to give away that I actually knew anything about it. There's one particular apostolate that was very successful that they took over. And the the couple who started the apostolate sued the legion 
and they settled out of court and the settlement was way more than I ever thought it was going to be. I got, there's no way I would have ever guessed, but it was basically not just simply to get them to shut up, but the, the, the ability to, to make sure that they never talked about it. And I mean, that was one of those were like, are you kidding me? And this is something that people knew across the United States in the Catholic circles. They knew all about this particular apostolate, but they just didn't necessarily know that the Legion didn't start it. So basically what I was finding was that this had happened numerous times that you would have these groups, these organizations, they would start either a postulate or something thereof. And sometimes they'd get sued. And then you would see that there was a, a settlement and oftentimes the settlement's not public information. And then basically someone got paid off and the Legion went right along and basically kept moving with that particular postulate or whatever it was that they took over. I mean, this, by the way, this was a feature of this Associated Press story from a few days ago. Yeah, this kid sure. was abused. Yeah. Uh, the Legion offered to to pay off the family, uh, like fifteen thousand yeah. euros. It wasn't a huge thing, but he was supposed to sign a statement that was a lie, saying that he'd never been abused, right. that none of this had happened. And also, of course, the the key with those particular cases is not only that there's a settlement, but that you're not allowed to talk about it. Now, I want to just, just from a legal standpoint, walk you through what we're talking about. Okay. You have a situation involving a child, and the child has been abused, allegedly. A child comes forward, and they make an accusation. You know, oftentimes, they, they refer to something being a credible accusation. I want you to just think about that for just a second, because this is really, really important. When you have a 12-year-old child's word against a respected priest's word, and there's no physical evidence... How on earth is that child ever going to be ever going to win? You just you can't. You know this is the argument with with a lot of these cases. People don't realize how difficult these cases are. Almost impossible in some circumstances to prosecute, and yet over and over and over again, you've got these settlements. Why? Why are they settling so quickly? Are they trying to save face? I mean, I don't know. I don't want to even speculate. But the fact of the matter is, is you got to ask yourself if you have a situation. We have one accusation and no evidence. Generally, those accusations um, may not necessarily go forward. They may not be credible, et cetera, et cetera. This is a situation where it happens over and over and over again. We have settlement after settlement. That's shocking to me. That's shocking yeah. to me. You know what I'm saying? Like there, there's more to it than just simply that uh, their accusations. There, there's there's got to be more. Uh, they really are credible. Really, it's really what we're getting down to. So I want to go back to you guys. You have your findings. You have these hundred statements. The report gets sent to Rome. There's some obstruction that's met because it, it appears that members of the Curia have been paid off already. Legion, I mean, famously seems. Yeah, to I have, no, I can't. I can't speak to any of that. All I know is that that's that's what it's it seems like. That um, that yeah. The, I mean, famously, yeah. Cardinal Sedano, uh, Cardinal Secretary that's of State, right. you know, seemed to be in the Legion's pocket. He seemed to be protecting them all along. But also, I mean, so this report gets sent to Rome in 2003, and the biggest problem, the biggest wall is John Paul II. Yeah. Cardinal right. Ratzinger couldn't do anything. Right. Now, okay, now let's, let's, in his defense, it's not much of a defense, but in his defense, he is sickly, and he's also relying on, is it Sedano? And who else was there? Uh, not, again, it's not much of an excuse. My point, though, is that, you know, giving him the benefit of the doubt, he did have people who were basically running defense. But do you remember Ratzinger's frustration when that reporter from ABC yes. is asking him about it? And he's clearly yes. so annoyed that he kind of smacks him on the hand. I mean, yes. it's, 
not like the Pope smacking a Chinese lady on the, you know, it wasn't that level of smack, but it was, you know, a very light tap. And he, you know, this is, I think Ratzinger has more of a temper than people think, but, you know, he was very, very irritated by this. But within a a year, year and a half, he actually takes action because now he's the Pope and he can. Correct. Correct. Now, let's be really clear here. My report, or not my report, this report that I was involved in did not uh, discuss the abuse allegations for obvious legal reasons. As I had just explained, it's really, really hard to take a statement like that, not have any evidence, physical evidence, and that you move forward on that. Definitely heard about it. But the point is, is that that wasn't the concentration. This was this was more involved in other type of illegal activities. And you don't have specific confirmation that the report that was submitted played a role in this decision. Oh yeah, no, I don't because know. Because you didn't get right. that That's feedback. Correct. So, right. I mean, it, the Nor timing. Nor did I want it, by the way. Yeah. I did not want any feedback. But the timing, I mean, there, there seems like there could be an association. Again, it's more sure. evidence. So, all right. So, Maciel is disciplined, you know, early 2000s. I forget. He, I think it's like 2004. He gets prayer and penance. Uh, I, he yes. died in 2006 or seven. I think it's 2007. Um, and famously was reported to have refused to make a confession on his deathbed. Uh, said that based he couldn't be forgiven. The writings, yeah, based upon some uh, a reporter's writings, yes, who, who had um, interviewed individuals who were uh, there, physically there at, at his deathbed. That is correct. That is what that is what was reported. So we have this horrifying scene of a man who's lived a, a, an unbelievably sordid life refusing to make a confession on his deathbed. He's run a religious order for over 50 years right. and and will not make a sacramental confession, which is... Correct. Ho- I mean, it's horrifying. It's literally damning. It's one of the worst... Uh, it's one of the worst things I've ever read. Actually, it was it was really really awful. And again, this is not based upon your knowledge or my knowledge. It's no, based on what was written down. By we weren't even involved at this point anymore. We were done. Right? Yeah. No, I had nothing to do with it whatsoever. I had I had by that point I had graduated law school. I had commissioned in the army, and I had a whole different life. I had I did not have anything to do with the Legion after that uh, report. By the way, just just to make it full circle, you know, during that report, I had a priest, a, a former legionary priest. I was going to ask you about this, actually. Yeah. Okay. Good. So this particular priest, it was just it was very interesting because um, I didn't contact him. He contacted me through a we had an anom- an anonymous uh, PO box that was set up, <clears throat> and he contacted us, wanted to talk to us. So I agreed, and I drove out to meet him on a weekend one time, and. Um, he was a legionary priest, high-ranking, who he didn't admit too much, but it was so obvious that he had physical access to Father Maciel and had a tremendous amount of information on his misuse of funds, specifically, and also uh, access to the um, his drug abuse. Okay, so while talking to him. He had gotten to the point, which, by the way, will lead us to our, our, our next topic, I'm sure. But he basically had to blackmail the Legion into getting him, getting him like a, a letter of recommendation so he could be incarnated in another diocese as a parish priest. 
And it was just astounding that he was saying this so off the cuff as if it was just like, well, this is just what you have to do in order to le- le- leave the Legion. It's like a mafia thing. It really was. And it was, it really took my brother away because I had not really thought about it up to that point. And as I'm leaving him, I'm thinking to myself, he's admitted that he himself has participated in some pretty egregious activity in order to get where he got. And yet he made it sound like, I mean, this is just how you survive. And as I'm leaving, I just remember uh, he had spoke, spoke to me for the better part of an afternoon, I'm getting in my car and he says, uh, now remember when you're done with this, because he knew basically that I was, I was at the end of this, you know, gathering of information, this kind of thing. Because when you're done with this, you need to wash your hands of this and never ever look back. I just remember, man, he was just, he just knew so much more than what he was gonna, willing to give me. But boy, was he right. I mean, because I, I know that's exactly what I did. You know, it was over and done with. And I just never, I never wanted to, like, as you asked, like, you know, what's the follow up? I don't, I don't want to know. I didn't want, I wasn't interested. It was always behind me. I just did, I had no interest in, in following it. Of course, and then, you know, ultimately, uh, Maciel gets invited into this, this life of um, prayer and penance. And then the real truth comes out. And I look back and think, wow. And they had to force him, if I remember correctly from the public yeah. reporting on that, they had to force him to to stay in this house. Like the yeah. one of the higher ups in the Legion basically said, if you don't sit down and stay in this house and stop being whatever it is that you're going to do, I will reveal everything that you've done to the world. I will call the press. So I remember that uh, was that was the story on his deathbed. But whatever, that's fine. But yeah. they use basically like we're yeah. going to expose you ourselves sure. um, as as a method of coercion, yeah. which again is a double edged sword. First of all, this right. guy's nuts; he has to be threatened. It's the only way. But it means they knew. I mean, they yeah. know what he's d- done, and they're threatening At to expose. At least the people him. that were present there had to have known, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and so for those of you who've been watching, I don't know how long we've been recording, but watching all this time and going, okay, but he's dead. So what's the point? Why are you talking about this? Because him dying is not the end of the story. And that's, that's the problem. You know, this um, Associated Press article from just a few days ago mentioned specifically how little Cardinal de Paulus, who was assigned by Pope Benedict to be the special delegate or whatever the title is to the Legion and to oversee their quote unquote reform didn't actually reform anything. In fact, he left all of the people who were in power back then in place. He didn't force anybody out. Um, From the article directly here, there had been calls for the Vatican to suppress the Legion, but Benedict decided against it, apparently determining in part that the order was too big and too rich to fail. Instead, he opted for a process of reform, giving to Paulus the broadest possible powers to rebuild the legion from the ground up and saying it must undergo a profound process of purification and renewal. But de Paulus refused from the start to remove any of Maciel's old guard who remain in power today. He refused to investigate the cover-up of Maciel's crimes. He refused to reopen old allegations of abuse by other priests, even when serial rapists remained in the legion's ranks unpunished. More generally, he did not come to grips with the order's deep-seated culture of sexual abuse, cover-up, and secrecy, and its long record of avoiding law enforcement and dismissing, discrediting, and silencing victims, to your point about institutional calumny. 
As a result, even one-time Legion supporters now openly question his reform, which was dismissed previously as ineffective by longtime critics. Um, and so DePaulis is dead. He died in 2017. So we'll never know what the heck he was thinking. But we have this Legion that every time I do a story on this, every time I, I say the, the, it makes zero sense, zero sense for a religious congregation of this size and scope particularly, but in general, to continue to exist when its founder is, is a demon. You, you can't like, and, and people don't understand. I don't, I don't know if there's a way to convey the mythology around Maciel, Nuestro Padre, as they all call them, Our Father. You know, same exact word. You notice it when you go to their Spanish apostolates and you're praying the Our Father, and in the first two words are Nuestro Padre, and you're like, wow, we're just kind of using the same God language to talk about this guy. And it's a very Spanish culture. This is not unintentional. I mean, it was a joke that all the legionaries parted their hair the same way that Maciel did. Everything about it was so cult-like, and, and, and he was so inextricable from their entire formation and ideology, that the idea that you could rewrite some constitutions and make this into a new thing is preposterous in the extreme. Am I exaggerating? No, you actually spot on. That's exactly right. Yes. Yep. And, and so he's there in spirit, if, if not, you know, uh, physically anymore. We know that there are other priests who he abused, who have gone on to abuse and then, who knows if the seminarians that they abused have gone on to be priests and are continuing to do this. This could continue to be a generational issue now. But we also have the culture of the Legion, the culture of <coughs> deceit, the culture of calumny, the culture of manipulation, the culture of utilitarianism. Uh, they use people. I will never forget. I will never forget. And I know you've probably heard this story. But one of our friends, a female, who was very deeply in Reagan Christie uh, when we were in college, recounted to me the story in a way of like, she was trying to cheer me up and make me feel better about the whole problem I had with the Reagan Christie. And she says, well, you know, there was this consecrated woman because the Reagan Christie have these lay consecrated people that they abuse. I mean, they kick them out after they've made their vows and then they pull them back in and they say, well, keep yeah. thinking about a vocation, but we just don't think you have a vocation now. And they ruin these people's lives. They treat them like garbage, separate issue. This consecrated woman who was from a former Soviet country or a Soviet bloc country, it may have been Czech Republic, I don't know. But you know, she's become deeply involved in the Legion. I don't know if she was consecrated yet or getting ready to do it. And suddenly she has this epiphany and she says, holy cow, the Regnum Christian Legionary ethos is like communism. It's, it's utilitarian. It uses people. And she brings her concerns to Father Maciel. And again, this is not... My story, this is a, a long-time Regnum Christi girl telling me this. And Father yeah. Maciel responds, well, yes, it is like communism, but with a good end. Right. <laughs> and, and so we have, is this story true or is it apocryphal? Yes or no. Right, but at the sure. very least, we have a college-educated, <laughs> intelligent young woman who is in Regnum Christi saying this like, see, it's perfectly fine. And, and right. this, this mentality is, is so rooted in everything that they've done and do that the idea that now well, everything's fine, you know? It's been a decade since the Legion admitted that Maciel did a bunch of bad stuff. And yeah. so we've moved on. Like, it's a new springtime for the Legion. Well, 
this this brings us to why I called you after right after your um, recent um, podcast on the region, and basically calling for you know the, these these priests and seminarians to leave. So yeah. Leave. So okay. So yeah. I I yeah, did. So I, I called for that. I said, hey, you know, everybody yeah. keeps telling me there's good priests, good seminarians still yeah. in, and I right. and I made a direct appeal. I said, if you're good. And you're still in this order, and it's monstrous, and it was founded by this monster, and you care. Leave. Run. Far away. And you had an objection to that. Well, I did because I was at a, um, a get-together, and someone brought up your, your podcast, and they're like, you know, Steve Skojak. I'm like, no, I have no idea who that is. <laughs> okay, so so they, they, brought, they brought it up, and I said, uh, I said yeah. And I said, you know, um, I've, I've dealt with as a as a lawyer i've dealt with priests who've gotten themselves in uh false accusations or a little bit of trouble here or there and it's like you know it's one thing to say it it's another thing to do it and then you and i had a discussion about this and basically you can call by the way i agree with you they do need to leave but the fact of the matter is is they probably can't and you've got to look at it from the perspective of this situation of you know um you're you put 12, 13 years of formation, you get ordained, all of your friends are legionaries. You, for the most part, you can't really have friends outside of the legion. If you have with many of them, they, they turn their back on many of their friends. I don't necessarily say that even as a bad or a good thing, it's just it's part of their culture, that's what they do. Yeah, but when you get cut off from everybody you've known for over a decade, yeah. I mean, that's your social sphere, you're starting new. That's right, that's right, yeah. So then, so then you're in that situation what do you do? So basically what happened was we had this get together and I, I spoke up and I said, yeah, no, I, you know, I, I agree with, with, with Steve, but you know, it, it's really hard. The fact of the matter is, is practically speaking, they probably can't leave. How would they, how would you leave? Well, it was like, what was it? I think it was the next day. There was a woman at that get together. She didn't say a single word. And I get a phone call. I think it was the next day. And I didn't recognize the number, so I didn't answer it. Uh, that I got a phone call. It was the same number. Finally answered it. And basically, it's a legionary priest. And he says, what you don't realize is that I want to leave, but I can't. Where do I go? No bishop's going to talk to me. He didn't want to give up his, his, uh, his priesthood. Yeah, which is, it seems to be that's the way out for a lot of the guys that we knew. They left the priesthood. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, we can start rattling them mm -hmm. off, right? You and I both know people. Personally, we both know of people who they, they left the, the legion and they left the priesthood. They, they left everything. Um, but, but if you want to still be a priest, what do you do? I know, exactly. If you really do feel like you're, you're called to be a priest, how do you remain a priest and leave that order? Who is going to talk to you? What bishop is going to give you the time of day? And didn't you say that this guy, that's what he said, is that he's talked to bishops and they're like, I'm oh, yeah, not touching yeah. you he's, with a 10-foot pole. He's gotten a hold of, of, of people and they're like, I'm sorry, but we're not really interested. Which, who, what bishop right now, or we know some bishops, what bishops turn down, I mean, look at who they're ordaining, right? <clears throat> Why would they turn down a priest? But the fact of the matter is, is they don't want that problem. They, want to, they don't want to deal with the legionary. They don't right? want to look like they're taking anybody who has yeah. anything to do with the abuse crisis. Exactly. Exactly. So the fact of the matter is, is they're stuck. And I don't know what the answer is. I, I certainly don't want someone, I mean, if someone were to call me up, even if I knew them and said, hey, you remember me, we were in college together, I want to leave the Legion. I don't want to 
had that kind. It's 20 years ago. I don't know who this person is. You've been enculturated in this environment that is, we all know is abusive. We all know it's led to horrible, terrible, demonic type things. And yet, so I don't, I don't know what the answer is for these guys. No, and, and the thing is, is how do you deprogram these guys? Even if they have nothing to do with abuse, they have been saturated in the culture that allowed the abuse to propagate. Right. All this deception exactly. and secrecy and stuff that exists within the Legion, it all happened because Maciel needed a culture that protected his proclivities. Right, exactly. And so he trained it into his seminarians. And I, I never so, ran into a priest who did anything untoward sexually. I mean, not once in all my time with the Legion. Did you? Uh, I did not, but I had, I had uh, a few close friends who did, yeah. But I mean, just the fact that we could have been that involved and never come into contact with that, but it doesn't mean I didn't come into contact with the corruption. No, but Steve, let's be really clear here. It, you, it has to take a certain type of, of individual who could be victimized. Okay. And, you know, like I but said- But I don't think all the priests were yeah. involved in that. No, 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 right, no, of course. In By fact, any stretch of the imagination. Here. There's some really, really wonderful people that are involved, yeah. are just misguided, misinformed, or have just never directly, you know, experienced anything that that caused them to question. That being said, you're in that situation. What are your options? Your options certainly aren't aren't vast. I mean, you you and I we talked about this the other day. There was one particular bishop who actually, um, this is years ago, of course, over 20 years ago, but he had a reputation where he would take legionaries into his seminary. Um, and they, for the most part, did pretty well, but he made them go through a pretty extensive, uh, for lack of a better term, deprogramming process. But he took a lot of risk in doing that. It, yeah. Like I said, you know, it generally did work. It seemed to work pretty well for him. I mean, but, there were actual cult experts who classified the Legion as a, as a cult yes. by any reasonable standard. So deprogramming is absolutely necessary, even for the yeah. best guys. Guys yeah, and it's just also possible. Been... We have to believe that it's possible um, purely from a Catholic point of view. I mean, we have to believe that that, that so is So in possible. this sense, I mean, you're correct, but I mean, in this sense, Rome has done an injustice to the guys who are still in by not giving them a process totally to get agreed. out. Absolutely, we have, 100% agreed, yes. We have a new general director, Father John Connor, not the Terminator, um, who, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. I don't know him. He's only 51, so we probably ran into him when we were in there. Did you know him? No, I don't. Uh, I never ran into him that I know of, but you know. Um, but he was formed under Maciel and ordained yeah, under Maciel. Yeah, I mean, I probably, like many of them, I probably did run into him while they were seminarians. I don't know. I mean, it's been so long, right? Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, there are names you remember and names you don't, but at the very least, he was subjected to that same process of formation sure. and ordained yep. as a as a co-founder. Joe, we're co-founders of the Legion. Don't ever forget that. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And, and Regan Christie's a vocation. Remember that too. Um, and you, you can't, once you have a vocation, you can't say no to it. Like it's, it's right. one and done. You've got it for life. Right. Um, but, but you know, so here we have this guy who's now running the Legion and he is one of the old guard in the sense that he comes out of that culture. He was, he's too yeah. young to have been in charge of anything back in the day, but he was right. formed by the people who were. And I don't know how many of the people who were in charge back then are still p 
pulling the strings. You know, I, I can see faces. I can think of names. I know you told me Father yeah. Bannon, who was the territorial director here in North America, has retired. Father Garza, who was the number two in command, uh, I believe, has right. retired. There were others that were lower down and younger that I think are still yeah. actively involved. Who it's are very interesting, Steve. Then. The fact that you're even bringing that up, there is no way to acquire that information outside of actually making a phone call yeah. to... Well, and I don't know how far that would get, but there, there's nothing that's posted online that would, you know, give you any kind of information or semblance of who these people are. Because I saw the articles and I didn't recognize many of the names either. Um, like with Father Connor, I, don't, I have no idea who this person is. Don't know where he came from. Don't He's know an American, yeah, yeah, which is interesting. I mean, I don't think they've had an American in charge of things before. Um, yeah. Well, but, so the other day when, when we when I was talking at this at the, like at this social event, uh, one of the um, individuals mentioned someone whose son was getting ordained, and I remember just thinking, "This is an American, right?" And, and this person's getting ordained, and I just it kind of like shocking, like who in their right mind would be joining this religious community now under these circumstances? I don't even want to speculate as to what the answer is to that. What was is, is that as a result of that conversation, I now have, uh, there's now three who have reached out and said, okay, well, now what do I do now that I'm in? I need to get out. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and, and vouch for someone. Um, right. Of course, because I don't know these people. So, okay. So, I, I mean, I think this is where we need to get to brass tacks and kind of wrap this up. First of all, yeah, yeah, yeah. there are people who are continuing to be and become involved in the Regnum Christi and the Legionaries of Christ. They are in the minority, but I have posted articles, just shared them on my social media, or I've said some things on podcasts or in articles, whatever. Almost every time, I probably every time without exception, I get at least a couple rejoinders of, oh, but the Regnum Christi, I, I've been involved. They've helped my family so much. I've been to their retreats. They're the best retreats I've ever been to. They're involved in my parish. I don't think you can say that. They're a new order. They've been reformed. Like So we get these people who really have have bought the the same old Kool-Aid that's now in a new package and they're drinking right. it. Um, and no offense yep. to you guys, but you you need to be more discerning. There's a there's something here that is really needing to be grappled with, and I don't think that you understand that. Um, but in terms of the guys who are in there, we don't have the resources to help them. I can't help them. You can't help them, even as an attorney. That you just you can't. You have another job. You have you have a full time job. Yeah, but it's also like let's think about it from a practical standpoint. What would help them? You know, and that's the question. I mean, we need bishops yeah. to step up and say we care enough about these guys. We need vocations. We're willing to work with them and come up with a process. We need people within the Vatican. If there's anybody left over there yeah. that gives a damn about souls. How about you guys get involved? How about you? Yeah, I don't see think that's going to happen. But okay, I don't so think so either. But but how? I mean, do these guys have to leave the priesthood? Is it like, oh, I found out yeah. that I married a psychopath, and while I'm waiting for the annulment that maybe is never going to come, I just can't be with this person anymore? I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Well, you you well, let's let's talk about uh, a situation that had nothing to do with the the legionaries, but you know, you sent me a former priest, right? Mm -hmm. Which, um, and. You know, in that circumstance, he had he had certain means. He's he's very well educated, et cetera, et cetera. Even in that circumstance, he has had such difficulties. Right. You know, so if you take a situation involving uh, a legionary where you're persona non grata to a lot of dioceses, 
even if the diocese was open to the vocation, I don't think it's prudent for a bishop to just say, oh, here, come on in. So even then, there's got to be a process by which there's a, for lack of a better term, deprogramming of the formation, right? Yeah. Because it's not like you can just show up and just enter into, and by the way, this is the other thing that I, that I think is really important. When you are a religious order priest, I don't automatically presume that you, if you, if you don't, if you can't, if you have to leave that vocation, you don't automatically enter into a diocesan type situation. Right. Because that's a totally different of a vocation as well. So your call for people to leave, maybe it is to leave the vocation of priesthood. I don't know. I don't want to make that. Or maybe there's an order. I mean, maybe, look, yeah. you and I both yeah. left the the involvement with the legionaries and other people that we knew have done the same thing uh tried to find solace in the institutional church found that it was still broken which was part of what appealed to us about the legion is they seem to have their stuff of course, together more absolutely and then wound up in parishes run by the fraternity of saint peter wound up falling in love with the right. traditional latin mass we we found what we were looking for in tradition sure uh, and we had been given an ersatz version of tradition through the legion a lot of the same yes. aesthetics but not the same substance. And so maybe there are traditional orders that'd be willing to do this. I, Joe and I are having this conversation today because we made the decision that this needs to be talked about for a couple of reasons. One is these guys who are on the inside and are realizing they, they need to get out um, need to know that they're not alone. That's number one. Number two, we know there are a lot of decent people who are still involved. Um, we know that we were decent people when we got involved and we have a lot of friends. I mean, most of our network of best friends were involved with the Legion of Reagan Christie at one time and, and left because they realized, Oh wow, I have to get out of this. But I mean, I guess that's I, true. I never thought about that, but you're I have three, three of my children's godparents are people who were involved with the Legion and said, hell no, I'm done with that. I'm not going to be involved with that anymore. But it was how I come, yeah, right? uh, you know, I came to know them. I came to, yeah, I mean, you're one, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, but and so it's really funny. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, it's not that there aren't good people there. There absolutely are. People are getting involved. Actually, that's in this. precisely the problem. Is that these are really, really extraordinary people generally from some of the best families. Yeah, and, and they want to do good I, things, and they're being yeah. used. They're being used. Yeah, the whole reason why I ended up in law school, being asked to partake in this investigation, was because of. Um, the my mentor's uh involvement with them and that you know and he's you know very well respected was very well respected in the uh, in the in the legal world and I, you know one of the best people i i've ever known and he was very much involved very much so so yeah it's just it, they 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 um they attract the best of the best you know? they do and so that's the third thing i want to put out there is these are people who need help we can't help them but if you can, if you know somebody who can, if you are involved in a group, an organization, a process, a diocese, an order that is like, you know what? If you hear from these guys who want to leave, send them our way and we'll talk to them. We'll interview them. We'll figure it out. Please let us know. Contact me. Use our contact page and I will put these people in touch with you. I have not done a single podcast, article, post, whatever about the Legionaries in the last two years that I haven't gotten several emails afterward from people who were involved and said, I'm so glad you said this because I was there and I went through this. 
people that were part of this have been disconnected, often intentionally disconnected from their spheres, and they're looking to reconnect with people who understand what they went through, and they still want to be part of the church, and they still want to do this stuff, and and we need to find a way to help them, and we don't know a better way than to just make this information public. This is a problem. I didn't see this. I admit, I when I said get out, I didn't think about the fact that they can't, that they have nowhere to go. So I have to thank you, Joe, for bringing that to my attention. I just wish I had a better remedy to offer people. Yeah, no, I understand. Thank you, Steve. I'm, I appreciate you doing this because I do think it's really important. The fact of the matter is, is that I just keep thinking about it. if I were in that same circumstance, what would I do? I, I don't know. I have a big family. That's good. Yeah. I mean, what else? Yeah. You know, a living yeah. basement. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, though. I really don't. So we end uh, today on a question mark, but I want to thank you, Joe, for coming on and talking to me about this, strolling down the memory lane that we, there you go. we left behind. Because neither pleasure. one of us really love talking about this anymore. No. And in fact, I actually was thinking about that. There were so many other things that we could, we could, um, we could, we could think about that would be a lot more fun. I yeah, always we, pro we procrastinated about doing this for a while. We did. We did. I think what we should do is we should do one where um, we challenge Tim um, Gordon. Gordon. Filing the, uh, finding the unicorn mass, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I actually thought about that. Like, one of the reasons why we were attracted to the Legion in the first place is we thought it was, you know. It was a, the unicorn mass. It was the unicorn mass. That's right. It was. It was. But, in more uh, ways than one. <laughs> that wasn't a pot of gold we found at the end of that row. No, it wasn't. That's for sure. A pile of something else. Yeah. All right, man. I'll awesome. talk to you. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for coming on. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of the 1 Peter 5 podcast. I want to thank you for watching. I want to thank you for listening. I want to remind you, please, on YouTube, subscribe to our channel. Hit the little bell icon because it's the only way you actually get notifications about new episodes. If you're coming in on iTunes or Stitcher, please leave a review and subscribe there. Make sure that you know about the new content that's coming in. And as always, we ask that you please support our work if you enjoy it at 1peter5.com forward slash donate. We are a reader, listener, and viewer-supported enterprise. We are a 501c3. All of your contributions are tax-deductible. We're allowed by law. And right now, we are in the middle of our February fundraising push and trying to get to our goal. So if you could please support our work, we would very much appreciate it. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thank you for tuning in to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. God bless.